0: Welcome to the Digital Infrastructure Podcast. This is the podcast where we focus on recipients of the Digital Infrastructure Grant Fund, which has been funded by multiple funders. And we don't just interview current cohorts, but also past cohorts who have gotten funding from this grant pool. Today, that means I'm interviewing Arieli Panesi and Jessica Feldman. They are joining us today from their respective positions. Arigiri is the assistant professor of law and technology at IE Law School, and Jessica is an assistant professor as well in the Department of Communications, Media, and Culture at the American University of Paris. She is also the director of the Civic Media Lab and also an affiliated researcher at Stanford Digital Society Lab, as I believe Arigiri as well. That's important because that's where the grant was given. It was given to both Jessica Feldman, Agudipanese, and also Lersey Barinhals. And the grant title, which they had worked on, was what makes an open source project, quote, critical digital infrastructure. Say that five times fast. So, Adyiri and Jessica, it's great to have you on. What does make an open source project critical digital infrastructure? Can you give me like the 30 seconds and then we're just done and we can stop?
1: I'm afraid not, but we can try. In some ways, it's quite similar to uh, non-digital infrastructures. We look for things that keep our societies running and safe and uh, functional and healthy. And we look for resilience, reliability, access like those are all things that kind of were recurring qualities of any type of infrastructure in my ethnographic work. And then I can say a little bit more about what's uh, unique to the digital and particularly to open source. But maybe I'll let Argiri add a few words from her research
2: first. So we started looking at definitions in law and policy. We want to define critical digital infrastructure. This meant we needed to define infrastructure first. That's not an easy thing. And, you know, you start looking at multidisciplinary scholarship on this. And finally, you realize that basically everyone says that The answer to the question, what is infrastructure, is that we know it when we see, it, which contradicts the fact that infrastructure is also supposed to be invisible. So we take it for granted. It's in the background. There are a number of attributes that we give to infrastructure and we sort of relate to infrastructure's invisibility. Infrastructure is also relational. We understand it in the way that we use it. The great example of if I'm on a wheelchair, a staircase is not infrastructure for me. Infrastructure refers also to the resources, to the resource systems that it holds, so it has value. Interesting for regulatory purposes and also in terms of economics, infrastructure has public good attributes, which makes it difficult to regulate. And also there's a certain path dependency that we need to always take into account. We're building infrastructures upon infrastructures, so that's important. And then it's also learned as part of a membership, which means that you can also be excluded from infrastructures. We collected different perspectives, particularly from the standpoint of a nation state, and saw that infrastructure is thought of as critical when it relates to national security, public health, public safety. But what we lacked, and this is where the ethnography and and Jessica's work comes in, is the perspective of... Civil society, we don't know much about how civil society sees infrastructure and what kind of critical elements or what kind of attributes of criticality does civil society give upon infrastructure. And also we lack the perspective of software engineers, of developers in terms of open source software.
0: That's an excellent answer to a question that I maybe should have asked at the end of the podcast, because there's just so many things going on now that it's like, okay, so you mentioned ethnography. Which is excellent. And also economics, and I think public policy, and I think cybersecurity. And so there's a lot of different ways that you're approaching looking at what is digital infrastructure. Maybe a good question to ask in order to give more context is what is the Stanford Digital Civil Society Lab that you all work with?
2: So the Digital Civil Society Lab is a lab at Stanford under the umbrella of PACS, which is the Center for Philanthropy and Civil Society. It's a lab that hosts interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary work.
1: Yeah. There's a lot going on. I think what is really interesting about the lab is how it's not just uh, cross disciplinary and interdisciplinary, but it's also multi-sectoral, I guess I would say. So we have researchers from many disciplines, you know, computer scientists working with social scientists, working with artists, working with historians. But we also have people from outside the academy coming in as practitioner fellows who are activists and working in advocacy and working more closely with grassroots civil society, as well as, you know, technology practitioners, quote, in the wild, as we say in academia. So it's a really interesting lab because they don't just do academic research, they really work on thinking about how to apply this critical perspective to making things and to kind of lifting up and empowering civil society.
0: Excellent. And so you all met there, you'd all already previously worked there as postdocs, figuring things out. Jessica, your background is in ethnography. Aguirre, your background is in law and much more like technology policy. And so you joined together on this grant to figure this out. When was this grant funded?
2: It was in 2019. That's when we started, January 2019. And it was for a little bit more than a year, which was interrupted with COVID. So ultimately yep. all the, the first cohort took two years. That's we completed in 2020. Almost two years, so let's say to one and a half academic years.
0: What did that work look like?
2: So we did a number of things. First of all, we organized a, a conference in 2019 at the very end of the year, November, if I'm not mistaken, and looked at this notion of uh, digital infrastructure from different perspectives. In we looked at relationships between workers, We looked at the political spectrum, we looked at civil society. We sort of tried to reconstruct what digital civil society is and how do the different relationships that we have in our lives sort of shape our understanding of digital infrastructures. And then we participated in a number of workshops at Ford, also working with other cohorts. And finally, we are now writing and are ready to release our report which is just a written document, which hopefully also will become a scholarly paper for our purposes.
0: When you say you looked at these things, you mean that you had in-person interviews with people? Were you doing uh, general research of, of all the literature, both? Was there some mixture?
2: Yeah, it was a mix. So I mostly did desk research and looked at legislation, case law. And Jessica is an ethnographer. She has conducted a number of interviews and I would let her um explain that
1: i talk to people that's a big part of my research and i do sort of values and design analysis which means you sort of look at the technology and try to understand what political or moral or social values are kind of baked into the design and it's rather interesting to do these two things alongside each other because you start to see how the design or development process of a technology really affects the the social outcome of the technology and in the case of open source, kind of the society that forms around the process of building and maintaining it. So that's sort of my analytical methodology and my method for gathering data is, as I said, I talk to people. So I did interviews and participant observation, which means just kind of like hanging out in groups and places with the people that you're interviewing. So I did interviews and participant observation with both kind of smaller civil society organizations that were using open source tools and engineers and computer scientists who were involved in the development of those tools. And mostly, particularly those groups of engineers and computer scientists were also kind of engaged in building some kind of community that we would probably call a civil society. And I was interested to learn from them about how they think about both criticality and participation.
0: Can you say what types, like could you give some examples of what sort of groups you looked at, what sort of projects?
1: One of the really fun and interesting groups that I was involved in observing and interviewing is it's not quite a group, but it's kind of a group called BattleMesh. And Battle Mesh is an annual yeah, convening. Yeah, <laughs> they're great. They're really cool. It's a more or less annual convening of people who build mesh networks all over the world. And it really is international. There are people there from Africa, people there from South America, Europe, the US. The meeting I was at actually happened to take place in Paris, but it is in a different city every year. And they're not just engineers. They're also like people who are really enthusiastic about the technology and might be more just people from civil society who either need it or really believe in it. And they get together and they hack stuff and they talk to each other. They have panels, they have meetings and they're friends for a long time now. So shared values, shared goals, but they're not exactly an NGO.
0: couple of follow-up questions. One, I love BattleMesh. They're the best. Earlier, you mentioned moral implications for how things are built. And so you said you're hanging out with people. Surely it must be a weird thing to hang out with people and judge them for their inherent morality and see how the structures they build end up. Am I misunderstanding what you meant there? When
1: you put it like that, it doesn't sound the way I meant it.
0: (laughs) Sounds weird.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the judging part is not really what our job is. Exactly. Exactly. So what we're trying to do is kind of articulate the values that are built into the communities and the technologies that they're producing. And then, of course, there is like a normative aspect to research where you say like, okay, are these values good for democratic society? Are they making a technology that is, in fact, something we would want to think of as a public
0: infrastructure?
1: So I guess that's a judgment, but it's not like, uh, I think you're evil or I think you're great.
0: No, because I wouldn't want (laughs) to... Piss off the people at Battle Mesh because I mean they're really good at at battling mesh networks. It's a horrible joke. I'm sorry, oh listeners. Second question is you mentioned civil society a lot. Now I guess I've spent too long around my Latin textbook, but civil means society, so that sounds like society to me. Can you explain a bit more about what you mean by civil society?
1: Does indeed sound like society, and depending on your view of democracy, maybe it is. Civil society, sort of colloquially, and the way we describe it in 21st century academia, and maybe, I don't know, since the Enlightenment, (laughs) in the U.S. at least, it means like basically anything that is not the corporation or the state. So that could be an NGO, that could be a social movement, that could be the meetings that happen in your community garden, that could, you know, it could be left or right. I happen to be much more interested in democracy and social justice, so that leans to a particular side. But basically, it just means that it's not the workplace, it's not the corporation, it's not the state.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. I feel much more caught up now. So I understand what both of you are doing and you understand that you have a report that's coming out soon. You've already released some of this up at a conference. What was the name of that conference again?
2: It was the Digital Civil Society conference. It was the inaugural
0: conference of the lab.
2: We might have, well, I don't want to speak on behalf of the lab, but yeah. It would be good to have a follow-up on that, yeah. Seeing also where this research took us, for sure.
0: Awesome. I would like to have a follow-up too. That just, that sounds really cool. I would like to go to that conference. You have a report coming out soon. Now let's focus on the good stuff, which I asked early on in the beginning as a joke. What did you find?
2: So one of the things that I was thinking as I, right now, so as I listened to Jessica, is that The value of the findings lies really in the interviews and in what we heard from the communities that Jessica interviewed. And then what ultimately comes up is that there's a misalignment, there's a serious misalignment between the values and what the community considers as critical and what the nation state and also market stakeholders, what is not civil society, thinks of as critical. And that's worth noting, I think that the notion of participation, the fact that participation is critical for civil society and for these builders, for the community of builders is largely neglected by the state in laws and by markets, which are mostly interested in proprietary values of software and generally proprietary values.
0: So when I think of the state, let's ignore large authoritarian dictatorships at the moment. And focus on what we can pretend is really nice democracies like the U.S., where we have lots of participation at some levels. There's lots of grassroots. There's canvassing. You know, there's the local town council here in my town, and so participation does seem to be valued in the sense that people do want people to go out and vote. Can you talk about why or how you showed that the state doesn't value participation? Because that seems to be at ends with, say, the democratic principles that we're all taught in kindergarten.
2: So when you look at infrastructure. We started with physical infrastructure. That's where you really see the bulk of regulation. It's really hard to see any sort of notion or mention of participation when the state regulates and when the state talks about critical infrastructure, when the state talks about maintenance, about criticality, et cetera. There's one example to give you an understanding of where we could see some notion of participation or some notion of sort of community grassroots building of or understanding of what is infrastructure, adopt a highway. That would be the only program that I could cite that was trying to build a relationship between an infrastructure and the community, inviting people to link their names and to fund a particular part of a highway or the transportation system. So this is an exception. You don't really see any meaningful notion of participation built into the regulation and the thinking of infrastructure. When you look at state regulation, you mentioned it earlier. We have cybersecurity uh, rules. We have tons of you know detailed rules about protocols and standards, safety standards, etc. It's not clear to me how the notion of participation, which seems to be very critical for civil society, is reflected in laws today.
0: For those of you who don't know, Adopt a Highway is a really interesting program where basically you can have a bowling club or the Elks Lodge sponsor like two miles of a highway. And so they put up a little sign saying this area is sponsored by the Elks Lodge. And then I don't think they clean it up, but they pay someone else to go clean it up. Yes. Okay. I was always wondered whether the Elks Lodge was actually out there with like pincers cleaning trash off the streets. So that's one of the things which we do here in the States. It's a a weird program, but a really interesting one. I hadn't thought about that as a good example of open source technology before, but that's definitely like there are some parallels you can draw. It's not open source itself, obviously. One of the other parallels that I was drawing is things like our public land system. So right now I can go and camp legally anywhere on public lands in the U.S., on national forests. I can just go hang out, have a good time. But they also lease off large amounts of it to, say, logging companies, and they allow ranchers to keep their cows on it. And this sort of comes back to the idea of the commons. I was wondering, when you talk about your work, did you draw a lot of parallels to the digital commons?
1: I can say that Eleanor Ostrom's work, who sort of wrote you know, the kind of, for lack of a better word, seminal text on how we think about governing the commons, it comes up so much in open source communities. Like every single convening I went to with open source communities had a working group on governing the commons. Like every time you go, there's one I haven't cited it so much in my research at this point. It's very valuable and a recurring ideology in open source communities that you think of this infrastructure you're building as a common good and you have to figure out ways to maintain it and to share responsibilities. And this is actually a super interesting problem right now because Ostrom's work She studied like watersheds, I guess. I'm not sure the technical word: Water resources, land resources, which were at the time she was writing seen as bounded resources. We know now that climate and natural resources are not bounded in any way. If you do something bad in the sea on the other side of the planet, we will eventually start feeling it. But at the time she was working on communities that were sort of quite local and found ways to manage their common goods. And she was studying them ethnographically and talking about how they governed it in a way that wasn't so much about profit and very interesting and useful findings. And so now the question is, how do we think about that with things, objects that are global, that are not bounded? And how do we think about that with objects like open source projects, which are not only global, but incredibly distributed? So it's not like you can go fishing and when you're fishing, you look at the stream and that's your shared resource, <laughs> you know, it's not like that with a piece of code. And in fact, you're only seeing one part of a much larger project and it's constantly in development and constantly being edited and fixed and maintained and you can never really see all of it. So these pose questions for even thinking about collaboration that came up in a lot of my interviews, and I think are really exciting questions right now, actually, about collective intelligence and government?
0: I feel like Nadia Eggball and Eleanor Ostrom are the two most frequently cited names, certainly in the conversations I have. So yeah, thank you for sharing. And that's cool that they come up a lot. One of the other things that often comes up in, in conversations I've had recently is corporate influence on open source. And so you can't have open source without thinking about, about corporate influence. I mean, the first open source licensing wasn't born in uh, well, MIT, you could argue, was born of the university, but a lot of it was born out of the need for large corporations to work together in some easy fashion. And so they could have two teams working on the same project without having to worry about having to have legal sign-off or collaboration or go through all the VPs. You mentioned Battle Mesh, and I know Battle Mesh is not the best example of all open source communities, but they're a particularly interesting open source community because they do build mesh networks, which rely upon infrastructure that's been put in place by large corporations. For the most part, there's some examples where that's not true. Fryfunk, for instance, runs their own infrastructure, which is super cool, although it eventually attaches to the grid. Fryfunk's in Berlin. They're super fun. It's an awesome mesh network. When you did this research about critical digital infrastructure, did you talk about the corporate influence on open source ideology and how that influences civil society open source projects?
1: Yeah, it came up in a few different ways. I can't say that people are particularly positive about corporate influence. So one thing that came up was the corporation's killing projects, basically buying things that were doing well and presented a competition to them and then just killing them. So that's a sad story. So That was one thing that came up. The thing we talk about mostly in our report and that came up quite frequently was this thing that one of my interviewees called the boss factor. And I'll just tell the story because it's a funny story also. So in open source discussions, there is often this concept of the bus factor, BUS, which is the idea that like one guy, usually a guy, in fact, or maybe a few guys are really responsible for some critical parts of the code. They wrote it, they maintain it, they care about it, they know all about it intimately. And that knowledge hasn't really been replicated. So and this is like, you know, code that runs something very important. And if that guy gets hit by a bus, then everything falls apart. So this guy is like, a, like the bus factor is basically how fragile the code is based on how many buses it would take to take down the system, basically. And so this person I was interviewing at one of these open source convenings said to me, actually, no one ever got hit by a bus. That has never happened. What happens is that people are working on this in their free time and their boss gives them more work or people are working on this, you know, as part of their job and then their boss puts them on something else and then the project just flounders. And so he said the problem is not buses, it's bosses. Another thing that came up and I think they're related is that often when corporations come in and fund open source projects, they fund sort of a small part of the project. They fund a piece of code that's going to be useful for their products, and then they pull out. Or they let you work on it in your free time, and then they want you to work on something else. So it really influences the sustainability of these projects and their ability to develop a community and a governance system in the long-term way. And that's an issue. That's one of the major issues, I think, for participation.
0: Yeah, people have been hit by buses and it has ended projects. There was a guy who was doing pan-uralic linguistic work. I believe that's the case. I'm happy to look this up later, who in the 1930s was hit by a bus. So really sad for him and his family. But it did basically shut down that linguistic research. That was an open source project. I'm not sure what's happened in open source. There's a famous thing. I think the creator of Mario wasn't allowed to fly. Um, because if he flew, it would be bad for the company if the plane crashed. This is another way of looking at it. I've also heard it called the airplane problem or the elevator problem. I like the application of the boss problem. That is very accurate. I've seen a lot of projects go through that. So interesting, very interesting and cool. I get it. You mentioned earlier about digital infrastructure. I'll know it when I see it, but that's really tough because infrastructure should be invisible. Can you share a bit more about that and how you found that in this research?
2: We started looking at definitions of infrastructure and then digital infrastructure everywhere. It is hard to define. Infrastructure is usually being defined through its characteristics, right? So invisibility, the relationship with the resources, the fact that it holds resources and has value, the public good attributes and its path dependency that's quite important. It's also important for our projects to remember that infrastructure is built on existing systems and existing structures which brings limitations. And yeah, other than that, there are different definitions depending on what kind of discipline or what kind of angle you're looking at. But it was interesting to realize that ultimately we, first of all, we don't uh, all use the term to mean the same thing. Sometimes we use the term infrastructure to refer directly to the resources that the infrastructure holds or the process of building the infrastructure, which confuses things, I think. And then, yeah, the famous phrase, we, I only know it when I see it, which is from a Supreme Court justice back in 1960 something, 1964. I think is the best way to start defining it. The question is what is infrastructure and according to whom? What does infrastructure mean to whom?
0: I like that a lot. What is it and to whom? That's a really good question. How many different stakeholders do you present the opinions of in your report? I know you talk about civil society and government. What else?
2: We also looked at the market so that we complete the picture, defining civil society as the space between governments and market. And there, we mostly focus on software and regulation and litigation. There's this legal discussion about the copyrightability of software or patentability of software. So we're looking at This uh, proprietary view and contest uh, between market stakeholders, specifically in courts. A recent example is this very long and notorious case between Google and Oracle fighting about Java.
0: Thank you so much. So you did this work in 2019. COVID obviously threw a spanner in the works for everyone. So the report's coming out soon, which I'm very excited about reading and looking at. What are you working on now? Because surely that's not the only thing you're doing. Is there anything else you're working on that's related to digital infrastructure at the moment?
2: So inspired by this work, I started seeing infrastructure and regulation everywhere. I'm looking at similar questions and similar things that we looked at together in the context of the European Union. The EU is recently regulating heavily around cybersecurity, the resilience of critical structures, etc., The question of definitions comes up a lot. So I keep struggling with defining what is it that we're talking about and how do we sort of identify it within regulations because different nations and different regulators talk about the same things with different words, right? So yeah, I started looking at similar things in the context of the EU and moving mostly from the content and and software layer to the physical layer. I think that the more the world becomes cyber physical, we need to talk about infrastructure coming back to the physicality of it and thinking about how cybersecurity law is affected by this cyber physicality, by this turn to a cyber physical world.
0: Jessica?
1: In my work, I've been very interested in the intersection of sort of participation, democracy and design, and that's only been amplified by this project. And right now, I'm working on a project with a couple computer scientists, or a few, I should say, computer scientists, some in the US and some in Europe, that kind of responds to a problem that arose in some of this research and some previous research I'd done around cybersecurity and access control, which found that in collectives where they're really trying to manage things democratically. But this could be like a radical social movement or it could be an NGO or a union or something where they really do things in a distributed or non-hierarchical way. They get into lots of trouble around things like password management and access control. This is where the power struggles that might have been solved in other parts of the organization end up kind of getting moved into digital security. So whoever has the password gets to be in control of communications and gets to sort of power bottlenecks in a way that it ought not to, basically. So I've been working with a couple engineers on this project called Colback, which is collective-based access control. And we're workshopping it at a security workshop in, I I think it's later this month. And then we'll be publishing a paper towards the end of the semester. And this sort of came from ethnographic work. Now we're doing some very theoretical design work. And then we'll kind of move back into testing it with some user groups in Europe and see how it goes. But that's an exciting and fun thing to be working on.
0: It's fun for me seeing how disparate both of your research studies are but how they combined really well in this one particular report. That's really cool to watch. Access control is fascinating. Who has the power is really interesting. I also, I mean, I started as a linguist and so I'm always figuring out what are definitions, what do things mean? And so it's really interesting to see that sort of side of things, especially in the EU right now, because while they're simultaneously clamping down and trying to regulate across the board, They just released a massive 400-page report that says we need to have more Osbos in industry. So it's like, okay, which is it? Are you having a more open source or not? And how is that going to show? It's going to be very interesting to watch that space in the future. In particular, it's going to be interesting to read your report and share it. So I'm looking forward to that. Check them out at the end of the month. This is in October. looking forward to that. Actually, this is recorded on October 5th. October 4th, yesterday is when Facebook went down for five hours. So I did know that the infrastructure was gone when it was gone. So that was tough. I noticed it when I missed it as Jessica wrote in the chat. So that's great. Thank you both so much. Before I let you go, I am going to ask my final really hard question because you talked a lot about what digital infrastructure meant to markets, governments, and civil society. it. what does digital infrastructure mean to you?
2: So I think that every time that I talk about or think about digital infrastructure, I think of one person, that's Yochai Bengler, who was my professor uh, of law and technology one day uh, internet law. And I just think of the three stacks. There's a lot of different sort of definitions of the layers of the internet. And the simple three layer structure is what comes to mind all the time. Physical, the wires, the satellites, logical, the software, content, what we actually write and talk about on the internet. This three-part structure is what comes to mind every time.
0: I love that. I hadn't heard that. Thank you so much for sharing. That's excellent. Uh, Jessica, ethnographic perspective, what does digital infrastructure mean to you?
1: It's really hard. I think about, I also think about these layers, but I think from the ethnographic perspective, you can't really say that one layer is more fundamental than another. Because, at least from the perspective of the people involved in organizing, for them, it's just as important to be able to tweet as it is to be able to connect <laughs> and now we know that the connectivity is essential to being able to send out a message but I think making all of those layers equitable and accessible and participatory is really important that's more descriptive than definitive but I think that, yeah that's where I'm coming from if I could say one thing though this goes back a little bit to something you were saying earlier but it's one of the more interesting things that I think comes from open source is that One of the engineers I interviewed spoke very clearly in this way that made me think differently about infrastructure. And I'm just, I'm going to quote him here. So this is a quote. He said, the intrinsic nature of code being copied for free has an implication for the way we talk about digital space. It's not like a bridge. In code, it's not as clear cut what is a blueprint and what is a bridge. And I think we have this history of talking about digital infrastructure using these metaphors of bridges and roads. And it's true, but when we talk about open source, we're talking about if you make a mistake in the architecture, then that mistake is copied across the world. So the stakes are a lot higher in some ways. And also participation becomes really important because you actually need to coordinate people all over the world who actually don't know each other and aren't talking to each other to make sure that they're keeping an eye on these architectures. So I guess To me, this is where the idea of making an infrastructure that supports democratic participation and the actual process of building this infrastructure being something that requires participation in order to survive, they sort of coalesce in a rather beautiful and important way that maybe changes the way we have to think about producing this infrastructure.
0: I like that a lot. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes All models are wrong, some are useful, which is how you think about abstractions, right? Roads and bridges, it's just an abstraction and it's not particularly useful all the time. We do often go back to that. I know of at least one person who's heavily involved in this space who can't stand the roads and bridges analogy. I won't mention their name, but it's not me. I kind of like it, but I also like, you know, the cathedral as an example of things, which are things we build. Mm -hmm. mostly because I get to imagine myself as a gargoyle instead of actually helping out. I just sort of spout water off the top and just sort of look down on stuff. So, yeah. It is interesting thinking about free stuff. I would love to have more abstractions. If you come up with any more, if you have any more that are really relevant, I would love to hear them, which reminds me of my final and last question. For those listeners who are here who want to follow along with either of your work, where can they do so? Magidi?
2: We both have our respective pages on the Digital Civil Society Lab website which is uh, quite rich in content and will definitely update it with the report as well and everything related to this particular research, the research funded by Ford Foundation. Also for me, SSRN, uh, that's that's where you find most of my scholarly papers and yeah, the lovely infrastructure of the internet.
1: Yeah, same for me. I uh, try to keep things updated on my academic website. And um, of course, we update the Digital Civil Society Lab page as well.
0: Excellent. Don't look for them on Twitter. They're too busy writing awesome papers. Thank you so much, both of you. It was a real pleasure to have you on the Digital Infrastructure Fund podcast. It was great to talk about your work. I look forward to seeing more of it in the future. Thanks again.